all sound poetry is lacking in total commercial value. You can't sell this stuff. Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. Eric Clyde here. And today we're here for the love of, of the good old archives. Uh, of, of the avant-garde. We're going to be talking about an online archive of the avant-garde that's existed now for 25 years called UbuWeb. And we're going to talk to uh, the founder and real principal curator of this online archive, Kenneth Goldsmith, who's a poet, a critic. Uh, he teaches at the University of Pennsylvania, and he has, for over the course of a generation, essentially been accumulating artifacts, audio, video, text of the avant-garde and sharing it online. And that sounds simple, but there's so yeah. much more to this story. And, and, and we're, we're talking to him on the occasion on the publication of his book, which is a memoir uh, of creating UbuWeb and maintaining UbuWeb. And it's full of, of wonderful stories and anecdotes, as well as inspiration and, and, and to some extent, instruction, I think. I think. Uh, for doing the same thing, his book is called Duchamp is My Lawyer, The Polemics, Pragmatics, and Poetics of UbuWeb. And what people should know about UbuWeb is it's it's the kind of videos or uh, audio that you find easily if you have access to a world-class library, uh, a big one, because it's the kind of strange artworks that are uh, not going to be checked out on a regular or basis. Or things that might have been traded back and forth on VHS exactly. 25 and, years ago. Or, or people that, yeah, people that may have had a, uh, a yearning to see strange videos with their friends. And so, yeah, these VHS tapes might have been copied and shared so that you could see uh, wild artworks or, or strange uh, non, not commercially viable pieces of video that are still uh, valuable and fun to watch. Uh, but now it's all it's all there on UbuWeb, a place where you can still see these things. And it's tied together with with video, with text, but also sound and radio play play a real role here in 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 the UbuWeb story. So we think this is uh, if you've enjoyed any of our interviews about archives or art and sound art, I mean, this is definitely for you. Yeah, handcrafted websites that stand the test of time are certainly uh, one of one of the fun things we're excited to share today on today's episode with our interview with Kenneth Goldsmith. We're really thrilled to welcome to the show Kenneth Goldsmith. He's the American poet and, and critic and the founding editor of UbuWeb, along uh, with being the senior editor of Penn Sound at the University of Pennsylvania, where, where he also teaches. And he's the author of, of a memoir of sorts of UbuWeb, uh, recently published, called Duchamp is My Lawyer, The Polemics, Pragmatics, and Poetics of UbuWeb. Uh, Kenneth, uh, welcome to Radio Survivor. Thanks for taking some time to speak with us. Okay, Hi. For folks who, who haven't heard of UbuWeb, and, and I hope that this interview causes them to, uh, to correct that uh, oversight and immediately plunge in, can you describe what is UbuWeb? Well, it's a website. Uh, a website, remember those? Uh, it's an independent website, remember those? Uh, you know, it's a website written in HTML 1.0, remember those? Uh, in other words, it's been around for 25 years. It's the largest free archive for avant-garde materials on the internet. Uh, it holds, I don't know how many cultural artifacts, in the hundreds of thousands, and it's been expanding uh, exponentially uh, every day. Uh, uh, e even, even last night it expanded further. So it's, it's a 25-year work in progress. And by avant-garde, 
artifacts. Give us a sense for, for what that means, what, what you have there on the website. Uh, well, you know, I mean, it starts with pretty much the old school avant-garde, the old white male European tradition is the basis of our collection from, you know, Marcel Duchamp to Andy Warhol and folks like that. Of course, uh, that that's not good enough and uh, we can't stop there. So we've expanded it. Uh, largely to non-Western forms, uh, forms uh, focusing on uh, artists of color. Believe me, there's there's always been uh, a, a rainbow variety of uh, sexual uh, points of view exposed. So uh, we started with something pretty straight, and I think we tried to bend it uh, over the last 25 years hey. into being more contemporary. Hey, Kenneth, I wonder if, it, if I can challenge you to do something that is probably not fair, but it will be fun. Um, can you define avant-garde art for people that, that may not have been exposed to the concept? Yeah, sure. I mean, all, uh, you know, ever since uh, visual art stopped trying to replicate the world around it, you know, and that ended with the invention of the camera, art had to find a new way of being in the world. If it's uh, uh, mimesis was no longer its, uh, uh, you know, main function, then there were a lot of artists wondering, well, what is the function of art? So it began to push out into abstraction. I mean, you could even go back to somebody like Monet. Uh, he sees the world. He says, uh, the camera made uh, the landscape clear. I'm going to make it blurry. That's an avant-garde move. Of course, no, not too many people think of Monet today as being avant-garde, but absolutely um, the impulse to take art in a new direction uh, was an avant-garde impulse. So you can kind of track every art movement in the 20th century as having an element of the avant-garde in it. As a matter of fact, that was the game in the 20th century, was leapfrogging the guys who uh, came before you to try to make it weirder and try to make it more extreme until you get to something like conceptual art where it vanishes completely um, and and then it sort of then it has to rebuild itself again and again. So, you know, I mean, I would say, you know, even Picasso, you know, everybody, oh, Picasso, Picasso. So, you know, they're worth millions of dollars. But the impulse behind Cubism and all of Picasso's stylistic flip flops over the years, you know, we're all part of the avant-garde impulse. So, in other words, it's a pretty uh, large and I think generous genre. And what drove you to want to? compile these works on the internet in, in 1996 in a world, you know, before uh, we had a term called social media before even a MySpace, never mind Facebook, uh, or a YouTube for that matter. Uh, what, what drove you to want to compile these on, on a website? Well, um, I was, and I guess I sort of still am, uh, I was trained as a visual artist and uh, my subject matter uh, when I was younger was books. You know, I would make these big books out of wood and I would carve words into them. And um, what ended up happening was uh, the sculptures were beautiful, but I was begin beginning to resent the time that it took to carve the wood. And I was just interested in the words. And mm. I got really, really interested in the words, you know, in a material way, kind of a plastic way, not really a mate, a way that was so much about meaning, but is about the way that the words actually looked. Um, and at this point, I had these collectors that were down in Florida, and uh, they collected uh, concrete poetry. And I'd never really heard of concrete poetry. I mean, what is that? And it turns out that that's actually a way uh, that was formed in the mid-century 
of working with poetry, not by the meaning as much as by the arrangement of words on a page, you know? And I was like, wow, this is sort of exactly what I'm interested in. And I got really hooked on this very forgotten genre called concrete poetry. And I began collecting all these books of the stuff. And there's a lot of it, but no, you know, you could go to a used bookstore and pick up uh, a book of concrete poetry for two bucks or something like that. And I got this giant collection. And when I first saw the graphical web in 1995, I noticed the interlaced GIF. I, you, do you remember those? Yeah, interlaced yeah, GIFs? yeah. So it's a type of, of, of graphic. I mean, it's a graphic file. People know of like animated GIFs now, I guess. But but where um, in order to, I guess, to save memory, uh, they alternating lines of it would fill in, right? Yeah, yeah, like a Venetian blind or yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah, and there were a lot of sequential uh, concrete poems, poems that like kind of filled themselves in in that way, but they would go across pages. And they were kind of like primitive animations. And I was like, oh my God, this is all starting to make sense somehow. So I, you know, got, and I was really excited by the uh, uh, graphical web because I had been on Lynx and Unix systems before that. Um, so I began scanning some of these concrete poems and putting them up as interlaced GIFs. And wow, they started to kind of come to life. And also being backlit on the screen gave concrete poetry a new life. I mean, it was kind of dead on the page. Believe me, in the early 90s, the stuff that was produced in the 50s and 60s looked a little bit dead. But when backlit by the screen, they started to really jump. And then they kind of moved as they were kind of interlacing. So I thought, wow, this medium was waiting for a revival of concrete poetry, and I am going to be the man uh, to build that collection. So I guess I built one of the first... Uh, uh, archives of concrete poetry. I just scanned stuff, put it up. I sent an email out to some friends, you know, my two friends that might be interested in concrete poetry. And I said, hey, check this stuff out. And they said, hey, that's pretty cool. That looks pretty good. And they sent the email out to a few other friends. And before I knew it, I had a, um, a, a group of concrete poetry fans hmm. uh, uh, surrounding me. Um, so that's kind of the genesis of the site back in, back in 1996. And critically... You did this, I, I, I'm to understand, especially from reading your book, without checking in with anyone first, right? <laughs> well, nobody checked in with anybody first. I mean, it was the web. You just put it there, you know. Yeah. Uh, and that, that became a policy. We still don't check in with anybody. There's hundreds of thousands of things that are unchecked in, so well, to speak. And that's interesting um, because, you know, I, too, was on the web, you know, in 1996 and a little before that. And... You know, the metaphor of Wild West, I think, gets overused uh, in a lot of ways. And, of course, uh, I think is due for some historical revisionism. But nevertheless, there was a sense that people – that was the way you did things on the Internet in 1996. You just you just did it. You didn't sort that's, of take no, another thought. <laughs> hold on. That's the way we still do things on the Internet. <laughs> don't believe don't believe them. They were trying to control you. I mean, well, all right. Well, well tell know, me. Tell me more about that. Tell me more about that well, ethos. I mean, I've, I've written a whole book about that. Basically, the book is called Duchamp is My Lawyer. Uh, and as you said, and basically the idea of Duchamp, his permission is, he says, I can take anything in the world and I can call it art, right? He took a urinal right. and he said, that's a, that's a sculpture. And, uh, you know, that's a beautiful permission that permits anything uh, to be something special. The most boring thing in the world now can be elevated and, and become something special. It's an incredible permission. The world becomes a very rich place when everything is valued. Okay. 
and so the notion um, that uh, you know that 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 nothing can be excluded um, was something that really propelled the site, a kind of a Duchampian idea. Uh, I, I'm just going to select it and I'm going to put it up there and I'm going to call it uh, call it an important piece of art. Now, the way that this all works is that there's no money exchanged, okay? First of all, let me just start by saying that avant-garde art in general is pretty valueless. It's historically priceless, economically worthless. I mean, particularly the stuff that we deal in, which is like abstract films and sound poetry. I mean, you could sell mm -hmm. this stuff if you wanted to. Okay, so that's the first thing to know is that is that I don't take money and never touched money in 25 years. Uh, I don't pay anybody. I don't <laughs> ask permission. I don't ask for grants. If somebody wanted to buy the site tomorrow for a million dollars, I'd say you're out of luck. We don't do money here. And that's the beauty of it. It's managed to actually work really well. Everybody is really comfortable with sharing things when there's no economic incentive involved. And that's that's an interesting point because it seems to me that if I if I look at this arc that's happened in in the intervening time, uh, part of the growth of the internet is this constant drive to find what is that economic incentive and 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 to and to create economic value, if you will, out of out of just everything else, right? We call it monetization is, is, is the word, right? That gets used uh, within any in, in, internet industry. And, and sometimes it's, you know, it, it's a matter of creating something, but other times it's, a, it's this very kind of regressive uh, kind of action, right? It's, it's uh, the RIAA uh, trolling, um, you know, music sharing sites to sue, you know, grandmothers for the, for the MP3s that, that, that their grandchild downloaded and, and things like this. And, and, and so when I, you know, say sort of that's a change since 1996, it's because we have some of these examples of, you know, copyright industries, uh, you know, movie studios, record labels, et cetera, book uh, publishers as well, you know, going out and, and sort of patrolling for unpermissioned uses of, of their intellectual property and looking, you know, either to, to, to tamp it down or, or achieve rents effectively, right? Um, how, and, and you say, you know, and, and, and it, sometimes it seems to be, it doesn't matter whether the, the person who has shared it is deriving any, any, any actual economic gains. Um, so I wonder how you've managed to, to sort of uh, keep going given this background and these, these actual things happening, uh, you know, to, to essentially average people. Yeah. Um, well, one of the first things uh, that we did was we removed ourselves from Google. Uh, so they can't ah, find okay. us, which is, which is great. Uh, you know, people write books about how to get your Google ranking higher I, my, my, I want to get off Google entirely. Uh, and then once you're off Google, you're kind of free to do whatever you want. They can't find you. You know, they're not that clever. And how do you do that? I mean, I know, I, you know, it sounds simple enough, but I'm not sure a lot of people realize that it's, it's possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if you own a domain, <clears throat> you can go into, I guess, it used to be called Web Administrator Tools on Google. I think they changed the name. But you can go in and you can remove your site. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> That's it. It's simple. You know, nobody tells you this. 
you know, nobody tells you a lot of things. And that's part of like the reason I wrote this book is to tell people that sort of things are still possible. Things that, you know, you thought were foreclosed upon years ago actually can still be done today in the same way that they were done 25 years ago. And it's not, you know, I mean, Facebook and, you know, Instagram or whatever, uh, you know, want, want you to think that that, that 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 really is the internet and you can't do anything independently, but that's just not true. Uh, if you want to build a website like you did in 1996, you can, you can build the website in the same way and you'll be left alone. So the notion that the internet has become just one thing is reductive and, uh, and incorrect. And how does a poet uh, decide to start building a website? And you, you know, you, up, up front you said you use HTML 1.0, right? So this is the code that's behind every website it's, at some point. And, and version one you know, it's simple. If people have, you know, for folks who weren't around on the internet in 1996, you know, the websites were, were more simple then. Uh, they were not dynamic, meaning that everyone saw the same website pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't customized to you. There was no database in the background. Um, so what caused you to, and I, you, you learned HTML, right, in order to do this, although, frankly, I mean, it, it wasn't super hard to learn. Um, you know, what, what, what made you suddenly say, take these to take the tools in your own hands and to run with this what 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 was well, that spark yeah well you know i was a visual artist in the 80s in new york and i was doing pretty good you know i was selling all this stuff and uh you know had gallery representations and all that stuff i mean i was making a pretty decent living at that but the damn thing i got i got involved in language what a mistake <laughs> and uh I, I fell in love with poetry, concrete poetry and all re non remunerative things so i found myself basically um, around 1990 out of work and um, I had to kind of retrain and I, I heard about this thing called the internet you know so I kind of I think I went and I took a class on on some HTML which we were writing in DOS at the time mm -hmm. and uh, you know I just you know I just learned it and and then through the 90s I had a day job uh, because poets make no money uh, whatsoever you can no, no poet lives on their poetry maybe Rupi Kaur is maybe the 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 only person in the world, but that's, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. Uh, so I took a day job in, in the, in the dot-com bubble from uh, the early nineties until the thing crashed in 2000. And basically I got to sit uh, at a desk all day uh, doing nothing. I was paid very well to do nothing because this, these jobs are just such a joke. Uh, nobody was watching me and I had a fast internet connection. So I spent 10 years strapped to a desk building UberWeb, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was great. I got paid to build UberWeb. The only time uh, I was ever paid for UberWeb, you know, so uh, that's kind of the way, the way the site uh, developed at that, you know, in the, in the 90s. You know, I think that is the, that is the story behind so many interesting, great kind of works, either of art or, or, or great, you know, compilations like, like UberWeb, you know, that people have these moments where, you know, they have the desk job that gives them the time to look busy and they can work on a zine, they can work on poetry, they can work on a novel or, or you know, uh, which was, or as you had the privilege of, of having a fast internet connection, right? I think uh, certainly in the 90s, fast university connections um, helped a lot of great internet things get off the ground. I know I was working at a university at the time. So, and, and again, had much faster internet at work than I did at home, which caused me often to stay at work very late so that I could take advantage. Yeah, exactly. Of exactly. I, I was there on the weekends. <laughs> they hadn't a clue. It was, it was funny. Uh, yeah. You know, so I think that just being a poet and having no money 
made me have to fill my time somehow. And I figured, well, you know, this is a good use of it. Kenneth Goldsmith, Sorry, you're... Yeah, yeah, no, you're, uh, Kenneth Goldsmith, you're on Radio Survivor today talking about your website, UbuWeb, which is a, uh, you know, an archive of avant-garde art. You started off by uploading images of concrete poetry to the website. At what point did you start to develop it into like a more of a multimedia archive? Uh, when did you switch to sound? And then tell us about uh, the transition to video. Yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, Sound came in. It was real audio. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. We've talked quite a okay. bit about real audio recently <laughs> on the show. <laughs> oh, man. So I, I, I started ripping LPs to real audio. You know, mm. I took I got a big collection. Now, when I was buying uh, the, the concrete poetry books, they had a, a, a sound genre, a parallel genre that was done in sound called sound poetry. In other words, where the language wasn't was spoken and intoned but not in a typical way of poetry where, you know, a Shakespeare where, you know, you're trying to get emotions across and stuff like that. It was really about the sounds of words. It was, you know, abstract, very abstract, like letter sounds and stuff like that. So it was, you know, a lot of concrete poets were also sound poets. I figured, well, we got real audio. We should put up some sound poetry. And so I spent an enormous amount of time ripping LPs and CDs at that time uh, to real audio files. And we had then a little section called sound poetry. And we had a little section called concrete poetry. Can you, can you tell us about what? one? Can you tell us about oh. one album in particular? Because I'm I love the idea of there being something that's especially uh, like we said <laughs> earlier, like non not, you know, very uh, lacking in total commercial value. <laughs> All sound poetry having... is lacking in total commercial value. <laughs> you can't sell this stuff. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I'll tell you kind of uh, about a sound poetry record that, that, that pushed the genre away from concrete poetry and sound poetry and into the avant-garde. And this is a good example. Uh, uh, so we, we love John Cage right? The modernist composer, the avant-garde modernist composer. His famous piece was four minutes and 33 seconds, which is four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. And the idea again behind that piece is that you don't really have to play anything, but if you're just quiet and you listen to the sounds around you, you'll find that there's plenty of uh, oral, A-U-R-A-L variety in our day-to-day uh, uh, listening experiences, okay? So we love John Cage, and John Cage made some really good concrete poetry, and he'd do these really weird readings of his pieces that to my ear sounded like sound poetry. So we took those readings, I burned them from some CD, and he was making weird noises with his mouth around words and James Joyce and stuff like that. And, I, and that was sort of one of the founding documents of our sound poetry section, but then uh, there were also these other moments in which John Cage would do those weird sound poetry readings accompanied by an orchestra, you know, <laughs> a classical orchestra. And I thought, well, this really isn't sound poetry. And this really isn't orchestral avant-garde work, you know, like Schoenberg or something like that. What the heck is this thing, you know? And I thought, oh, my God, I guess, I, I guess it's, every, you know, the, these, the naming things became too small. Oh, why don't we just call this avant-garde, right? Uh, that makes sense. And so within the avant-garde, then you could have these various sections of sound, of, of, of visual, of film, et cetera, et cetera. And that was the turning point upon which the archive changed from a sound and concrete poetry site into a site of avant-garde in general. I mean, you know, these these... These things are really slippery. You can't really say this is avant-garde and that's not. This is, I mean, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So 
by building a, a, a very giant uh, archive of the avant-garde I, and, and dispensing basically with, with, with genres of avant-garde, all sorts of weird stuff started to flow in. Uh, into into the archive that was typically outside uh, the prospectus of the classical avant-garde, and in that way, I kind of like to think that uh, we the uh, Uberweb is a very impure avant-garde. You've never seen an avant-garde quite like this, and I like the impurity because I think one of the problems with the avant-garde was its rigidity, its purity. I mean, it was it was it was really. Um, you know, it was patriarchal, it was colonialist. I mean, all those kind of uh, uh, references that you have around avant-garde as a male. I mean, it was, it was militaristic, all of that stuff. You could soften it and, in a sense, queer it by, by adding things that, you know, normally weren't there, but still somehow were in dialogue uh, uh, with, with the avant-garde. Mm-hmm. And you, you say it kind of in a passive voice that things filtered in. But I mean, you're not passive about it, are you? <laughs> this, I mean, this is well, curated. I'm not passive. Right? No, yeah. I'm not passive, but I'm open. Uh-huh. And I think, like, I'm not a historian, so it's just like folk. This is folk archiving. Hmm. You see, I have this theory that uh, uh, that, that we're all uh, that folk archiving has become a folk practice. Mm-hmm. We're all, you know, we're all archivists. Now, if you look at what's in your download folder or, uh, you know, on your hard drive of MP3s, I mean, you actually have archived and curated an incredible collection of enormous depth almost accidentally. You see, and everyone's doing this, whether it's building Spotify playlists or, or adding, adding things to your library and Apple Music. We all uh, have so many cultural artifacts uh, at our fingertips that the making sense of those puts us all in the position of being a curator. Um, now, you know, curatorial practices always came from above, but in a sense now, everybody uh, doing this, it's, come, it's become a common folk practice. It's very unconscious, uh, you know, like, like quilting or something like that, you know, uh, traditional folk art. So I actually think we're all archivists now. Yeah, and- we actually, we had a guest on... Um, uh- about you know, uh, about six months ago, who talked about that transition where, where now now that we kind of keep because of our computers and because of our phones, each individual really does keep a personal archive of their lives. That's uh, that was un- unthinkable in the 1960s, which really still is you know within the memory of many living human beings. It's a well, it's, except it's a great ex- except except except. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned in my book uh, the one instance of Andy Warhol, and Warhol um, was a hoarder. He was yeah. a world class hoarder. <laughs> the guy just bought everything, and he had this beautiful townhouse on the Upper East Side of New York, and it was crammed to the gills with, you know, Rolexes and ceramics and, <laughs> and Navajo blankets. And he'd shove them into these rooms, and he'd shut the door, and he'd never open them again. He'd just fill the room, and he'd go upstairs and fill the next room, etc. Right. Et my my favorite Warhol hoarder fact is that he never threw away a piece of mail. Well, and and this is it. So at some point. Um, I believe it was in, uh, I have it in the book, the actual date. I think it was sometime in the early 70s. He decided to keep uh, always next to his desk an open box, like a cardboard box. And into that box, he would just throw everything. 
So uh, pieces of mail would come in. He wouldn't even open them. He'd just throw them into the box. Um, you know, an artist would give him a drawing. Joseph Boys would come to the factory and give Andy a drawing. And, and it would probably be worth $20,000. He'd just throw it in the box. He'd get test pressings of, you know, LPs from the Ramones that are all signed. Love, you know, dear Andy, love Joey Ramone. And that right. would go in the box. And it's right. Like, as well as the junk mail that came to his office that, you know, and, advertising and, whatever. Absolutely. And he would, he'd be eating a hamburger. You know, the famous one of Warhol, that video of Warhol eating a hamburger. He'd throw the, he'd throw the Burger King wrapper in there. Everything, tissues, you know, used condoms, uh, 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 envelopes that were full of money, <laughs> that were full of cash. You just throw it in there. And when the box was filled, he'd seal it, number it, and sign it and call it an artwork. He'd call it a time capsule. And then over the course of his uh, career, I think he did this for about 25 years. And at the end of his life, he had hundreds and hundreds of these time capsules, which is such a brilliant idea. And they all got shipped to the Andy Warhol Museum. And for years, they just sat on the shelves there. In the, if you go to the archive in the Warhol Museum, you would see them just these boxes and boxes of time capsules. The problem was everybody was afraid to open them because it's an artwork of Warhol's. When something like that got opened, uh, you had to treat it like an artwork. So when they decided to open up the time capsules, it took three people, uh, hmm. one to open the box, one person to pull the stuff out, another to describe it, and a third to uh, type all the stuff into a database. And they had to catalog and number and describe every piece of flotsam and jetsam in those boxes, including the hamburger wrapper, you know? And so every single one, you know, it took years and years and years to open these things. And when they opened them up, they found treasures. And so if there was a, a thing with $10,000 in it, you know, just a, a, a cash envelope, they couldn't take that money. That had to stay there as an mm -hmm. artwork of Warhol's. <laughs> but tell us, Kenneth Goldsmith, I mean, we're talking to you about Ubu Web, which is your archive, right? Did you treat it like, uh, like a similar cardboard box, like throwing anything that you found? No. That was, um, so no. What did you throw into the box? Right. Well, I threw into the box things that I had heard about, things that were interesting to me. Um, the thing about UberWeb is that, you know, unlike Warhol, uh, well, I mean, it's a totally different thing. But I just I did want to talk about the Warhol thing just to talk about the notion of, of folk archiving and, and, right. and, and it's a, an inclusiveness. And also the idea that something that's considered junk today could be considered incredibly valuable uh, tomorrow. And that's the kind of, uh, uh, you know, I didn't want to play this, this thing safe. Now the problem, uh, the problem, I love archive.org. I think it's, you know, it's, it's a cool place, but the problem with archive.org is that archive.org is like a Warhol time capsule. Everybody throws everything in there and nobody can ever find anything. There's no, nobody makes sense of that archive. It's an yeah. accumulation. It's a brilliant that's that's the future. That's the future generation's job is to go through it and figure out if anything in there makes well, sense like to the, anybody. Like the Warhol time capsules, yeah. exactly. But you know, I I, I love archive.org, but I find it frustrating because uh, because it's not curated. And I thought, you know, I mean, in a time of a glut of cultural artifacts, uh, why do we still listen to radio? I mean, we we we've got everything in the world on Spotify and Apple Music, and yet we still listen to radio because somebody goes through it and shows us what's good. Okay, and that's so important—the role of 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 
of a of a of a person there showing showing you you know what's what's kind of good and what's kind of cool and turning on to things you know the way that you'd hear about bands in the old days you know before MTV you know uh, <laughs> somebody would say hey you got to check out this band and you go and you buy a forty five okay so that's a, you know word of mouth kind of stuff um, and so that's the way that I kind of went into Ubu but it's a very strange thing people say to me like. Uh, or I say to people, I'm sorry. Why aren't there like like more Ubu webs these days? Like mm. we we're kind of dealing with old and dead people, you know, Marcel Duchamp and stuff like that. Why aren't young people doing an Ubu web? And my feeling is that this notion of of archiving and curating in the way that I'm talking about it is very very out of fashion. Um, instead, the sort of notion of a horizontal archive just sort of something linked here, something linked there, everybody beating their own path through the internet in sort of haphazard ways, uh, like a kind of a real flow is more than a kind of like, I, I mean, I've, I've based my curation on something like the Metropolitan Museum of Art. They, they said, we're gonna put all the coolest stuff in the world under one roof. I love that. I don't think it's a popular way anymore. Yeah, I, I don't I, see anybody we should doing have it. Some, we should have a panel of millennials and Gen Zers <laughs> To, to sort of uh, fight it out with some Gen Xers. I think it might be because it, when we were young, when Gen X was young, it, there really what you had to go from point A, you, point A to point B, finding something worth caring about uh, was a day's work. And it really is uh, too easy in a good way for people to find something very exciting in, in a moment and to see it and to consume it and then to forget about it tomorrow because um, there's so much. There, there's a lot of good stuff on the internet. So why hold on to any of it and call it precious? Uh, well, I'll tell you why, because they disappear. Uh, yeah, exactly. So how many times have you gone to look for that YouTube video and says, oh, this video is not available in your but country then, or this has been taken yeah, down but, uh, due to copyright? And uh, I thought know. about this trying to, to build a Warhol box of, of everything that I've watched on the internet today. And it seems, um, you know, you could do it. You could screen capture your screen. Someone out there maybe is. We should, we should find that young person. They're probably um, neurodivergent in a very special way that that they're screen capturing everything that they enjoy on TikTok and and. Well, there uh, there was a there was a a, there, a, 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 a a PBS uh, uh, biography uh, by a filmmaker called Matt Wolf re recently, uh, and he did a, a a profile it's of of a woman uh, who's now dead. Um, named Marion Stokes in mm. or Strokes in Philadelphia, who for 25 years oh, yeah. had eight VCRs running and taping everything. And you know, in her lifetime, she was she married a wealthy a wealthy man, and so she had all the time and the equipment in the world. And she was a poor black uh, uh, woman who 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 uh, uh, fell in love with a very wealthy white guy who funded her for the rest of her, her life and married her and loved her. And um, in the end of her life, she had hundreds of thousands of videotapes of stuff that we really just went away. That was ephemeral. Right. And Especially all of that uh, stuff. The, the very. Getting... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. The, the very first uh, the, the very first days of CNN being on the air are in this yeah. archive that no one else actually has those tapes. She's the only Ex one exactly. who kept them. And guess where, they, where the tapes all went in the <laughs> end? Better. They went to archive <laughs> and they're all digitizing them. <laughs> but again, she uh, she was not curating. She was uh, she was she trying was to she was trying to to, to yeah to, to build a pool to hold the fire hose of information coming over cable television. 
Um, so I, but like, I, I don't think it's going to be. A, I don't know if it's necessarily a, a, a young person that's that's doing yeah. the screen the screen caps today. You know, this was an older woman who was doing it for many years. So, yeah. so, so Kenneth Goldsmith, uh, your book is called Duchamp is My Lawyer: The Polemics, Pragmatics, and Poetics of Ubu Web, and, and we're talking about you know uh, <laughs> this sort of folk curation um, of of art, really, or or artifacts and. And, you know, I, I have a pet theory I'd, I'd love to pounce off you. Just, I mean, it's something I've said many times, but, but it seems relevant at this moment, is that I think one of the most pernicious aspects of social media, um, and it's inadvertent, but I think it's true, is the like button and the, and the view hmm. counter. Right. And, and because it's, it, you know, it's that dopamine cycle. It's, it's, it, and, 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 but it's a feedback loop that, you know, it gives you this incentive to do things that are popular, that, that get likes, that get views, that uh, get reactions from people. Right. We and don't have that on UbuWeb. Right. Which right, which tends to reinforce, you know, which 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 again becomes a feedback loop and causes you maybe to do more of the same thing, or or you know, and 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 not necessarily follow that thread which you maybe find most interesting yourself. Um, and, you know, and, and I came late to that, right? I mean, you know, you had maybe web counters, uh, these sort of uh, kind of little tiny numbers that would count up uh, <laughs> that you could put in in the 90s and, and maybe you'd see it go up by one or two every week if you were me. Um, but, we, you know, you and I didn't grow up with, with that sense that we could do something and get this immediate feedback. You, you would do it and maybe somebody likes it. I don't know. Do you think that that has any, any, any interplay with, with why maybe – uh, there isn't the same uh, impulse to 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 create a, a nice kind of uh, a curated archive because it's hard because you don't get the feedback because you, you or, or 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 if you had the feedback mechanism you just wouldn't like the results. Yeah, well, uh, you know, artists are used to getting no feedback. Nobody cares about your work. <laughs> you know, never. You know, you know, painters. You know, you put up a show, maybe you get a review, a, you know, a little sale or something, and then then you go back underground for a long time. Poetry is even worse. Nobody even nobody buys books. Nobody reads them. So, you know, for me, the kind of like like long haul and lack of feedback is fine. Um, and not, not only that, on UberWeb, we host unpopular things. You know, sometimes people ask me. How come you don't put the whole site into one giant, you know, torrent or, or put them up as torrents? Huh. And the problem with torrents are that which is popular is rewarded by cedars and that which is unpopular dies for lack of cedars. OK, so that which is popular rises to the top and that which is unpopular sinks to the bottom. And I just thought, you know, I want this to be like a library. I mean, there are a lot of books in the library that never get taken out, but they sit on the shelves anyway. And eventually, maybe somebody will take them out. Or maybe they're not, you know, they get taken out every once or 10 years. It doesn't make them any less valuable. It makes them very valuable to certain populations that are interested in that kind of work. So, uh, you know, I, I wanted a library model for unpopular culture. Um, you know, you just go in and, I, you know, the avant-garde are such a strange thing because, uh, you know, no, you know, everybody has a distaste for the avant-garde. You're born <laughs> not liking 
12 tone music. Nobody's born liking 12 tone music, right? You know, and so you have to have had some kind of a falling out with culture or reality to be interested in the avant garde in the first place. Something in the world wasn't really working for you the way it was set up, and you go look for alternatives, right? So that that was, you know, I think that happens for anybody who's interested in really weird, weird music or weird literature, weird film. You know, sometimes like Hollywood just isn't quite doing it for me. So that's a very few people, right? It's a yeah. small, it's a small small group. And when I got on the internet, you know, it was really hard to find that stuff. Um, you know, and I wanted to make, you know, wanted to kind of enrich in uh, the web in a way it felt. Yeah. Like you could say that, you, it, but I still do. Today, like, I can put up like 36 films a night, right? The other night I put 36 films up, really. I gotten really fast at it. And I tell you, at the end of, the, at the end of that session, I feel like I made the world a better place. Mm-hmm. I miss community service by sharing uh, obscure works that are unavailable elsewhere. Now I get all my stuff from file sharing since I've been doing Uber web for so long, I'm on the best, weirdest file sharing groups. Everything <laughs> comes up there. It's a fire hose of weird stuff that I just can keep plucking and taking. This and these no are all like private this. things, right? I mean, yes, this yes. is not the kind of thing you find on Google. This is, this, these are really interpersonal networks. You may never have met each other, but you know each other through the internet. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's old, old, old school file, file sharing groups. Um, and so I'm kind of like the Robin Hood of the avant-garde, you know? Like, I, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I take this stuff from the very wealthy place and I put it out onto the parched waters of, you know, the parched deserts of the Internet for folks that, that want it. And most folks, you know, you can't find this stuff on YouTube. But what's great is that everything on UberWeb is downloaded because I think if you can't download it, it doesn't exist. Okay, you have to, you know, because you have to be able to download it, build your own local library. Um, and what happens is because all of our films are streaming, yes, but there's always a link below the screen that's, a, that's an AVI or an MP4 or something like that. And then what happens is folks download that from Ubu and then they throw them up onto YouTube. Right. I think sure. I think most of the avant-garde stuff up on YouTube probably ended up coming from the AVIs on Ubu. So it, 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 it's a great way of getting the stuff out there, you know? You know, and, and I know that uh, from the book, you know, that... For the most part, you know, you don't have many difficulties, but occasionally, you know, people contact you and and say, uh, hey, uh, take this, take this, take down this piece of art, take down this video, take down uh, this piece of audio or something. And, it, it, you know, it can come from sometimes from a lawyer in the form of like a cease and desist letter. Um, I mean, what do you do when that happens? Well, the first thing you have to know is that, you, you know, if you get a cease and desist letter, you're not getting sued. It's you're getting you say it's it's a little notification that says, hey, we see you doing that. Now, very you know, only a handful of uh, of cease and desist cases uh, for this kind of stuff actually actually make it to a place of fines or court trials. But these things, can I swear on the show? I already did. Can I swear again? I, you can swear and I will have to bleep you for, for oh, certain audience. Members. Oh, okay. No, no, it's all right. I, I won't swear. I can, <laughs> I can hold, I can hold it back. Uh, 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 I don't know if you've ever re- received a cease and desist letter, but it's a really a, a frightening thing. I mean, it really looks like you're being sued. I've written and, them. <laughs> you, you know, you'll, you'll, yeah, you've written them and you're not a lawyer. That's the thing. Anybody can, anybody can write a cease and desist letter. The template's all over the internet and you can send it to somebody and scare the hell out of them and they'll do whatever, whatever you want them to do. Okay. So people just have to know that like, you know, that when you receive a cease and desist letter, it's an invitation to a discourse. Now, when I receive a cease and desist letter, my first response is to kind of want to dialogue 
uh, with the people uh, and say, hey, you know, you know, I, this stuff is really not valuable uh, economically, but we're fans and we, we're actually happy to support uh, your dead brother, who's a sound poet, his work. Uh, I think the more it gets out there, the more people are going to write about it and the more he's going to live uh, in, in the public imagination. If you eradicate a, 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 an avant-garde artist from a place like UberWeb, they sort of cease to exist mm -hmm. in that way. This is a, and I've, I've seen this with happen with many filmmakers uh, who have given us their stuff. And, you know, they say they've seen upticks uh, in their reputations, you know, people who were kind of forgotten. They now get gallery shows. They now get museum invitations. People are writing dissertations on them because they found the work on UberWeb. Okay, so there are a lot of upsides and a lot of benefits. But if somebody really insists, and they really, really insist, you know, for whatever reasons, and people have their own reasons, then I take the work down. You don't really don't want it there. I, who am I to tell you uh, that you must have it there? Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, in that way, it's worked pretty well. Uh, sometimes, you know, um, copyright, you know, people, we like to think of copyright as being a black and white situation, but it really isn't. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very nuanced, it's a very, very gray situation. I would love to be the guy that, you know, the copy left freak, but I'm really not. As a matter of fact, if I had an incredibly valuable property, I would probably, you know, that was generating me millions of dollars worth of revenue, I'd probably go out and try to protect that myself. But in fact, I have no such properties. I've never created them, nor do I deal with them on UberWeb. Now, once in a while, you'll get uh, a property or a name that generates a lot of money. Um, and people think that because that name is up there, uh, we're generating a, a revenue from it. So I got to cease and desist on the name of William S. Burroughs from a prominent literary agency. And, you know, listen, William S. Burroughs, the money is made from Naked Lunch. There's no need for us to put <laughs> Naked Lunch up on UberWeb. Every, although we have excerpts of, of Burroughs reading it, but that's different. You know, that's a, that, that's a book that makes that makes a lot of money and, and it's available. Why would I want to do it? But Burroughs also did, you know, tons of strange, uh, you know, radio mixes and, 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 and avant-garde, you know, uh, types of seances and things like that and all that stuff, which you really can't sell. Uh, even if you try to, is up on UberWeb. So you have to really know the material you're dealing with. Don't mm -hmm. touch the stuff that makes money. We have these Glenn Goldberg, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Glenn Gould, uh, Glenn Gould uh, radio plays up, Hirschspiels, uh, German word for radio play. And they're very abstract and complicated and weird. And they were you know, made for radio. They're wonderful. I wouldn't put the Goldberg variations up on UberWeb as much as I love them. And I love, I love Gould playing them. There's no way, you know, that they really fit into the archive. And also, it's a lot of money. Why, I don't want to take money out of those people's pockets. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, should something, uh, uh, an obscure cultural artifact, um, go back into print, I'll take it down immediately because I want those little presses, you know, the people that are, you know, pr pumping out a thousand copies on, on, a, on a high density vinyl of some sound poetry or, or abstract music, electronic music. I want them to make that money. I don't, as long as it's in circulation and available for a reasonable price, I'll take it down. Do you know if there's ever been a case where uh, a, a piece of art that you've archived and hosted at UbuWeb uh, ended up being the, the sort of the source, the last remaining source for something to go back into print? Or for, or yeah, for well, an artist's it, family yeah. to have it? You know, it's very interesting. Um, I have been told uh, by experts in the field that there are many things on UberWeb that are not available mm -hmm. anywhere, including 
uh, in the Artisone Archive or uh, at the, something like at the Museum of Modern Arts Archive. You know, so Overweb ends up becoming some sort of a weird backup through its pirate uh, proclivities, ends up being a kind of a weird backup for for artists, uh, yes, I've had I've had Oz, uh, sound artists contact me. I had Marina Abramovic's people contact me um, to for for work that was up on Ubu that Marina didn't even have a copy of. Mm -hmm. Now that's a big you know she's a big star, right? So I right. think it's very you know again it's a it's you know listen piracy is preservation, <laughs> you know. Uh, anytime you're an artist and you get bootlegged, you should thank that person for caring. Okay, because most artists get nothing. And if you are bootlegged, that is such a sign that somebody values your work enough to bootleg it that that means that you have made it. You are a success. You know. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, you know, UberWeb is a website that you host and you build. And if you were trying to build this collection, let's say, as a YouTube channel or on any other different sorts of third party platforms, as we call them, owned by somebody else, right? Uh, you would be subject to somebody else's judgment as well. And, and, and most likely you would be taken out of that mediation, right? If you hosted something on YouTube and, and, the, and an alleged copyright owner, somebody who at least says they own the copyright in something puts out a notice to, to YouTube, pretty much that's the end of that, right? It goes away and possibly uh, depending on your relationship uh, with your channel, you're, you're penalized uh, for, for doing so, uh, you know, and if you're somebody who makes money on YouTube, uh, you know, you can lose the opportunity to continue uh, making money by YouTube and YouTube, of course, is the arbiter, um, you know, in part it's necessary due to scale, I'm certain. But, you know, there's no there's not a lot of nuance there. And I think that's a lot of reason why people think copyright is, is very uh, black and white, you know, whereas, as you're pointing out, there's there's all these shades of gray. And, and, and in many ways, it's the start of a conversation between a creator and other folks and creators and their audiences, I think, in, in a lot of ways um, that you sort of retain. And I know that, you know, you, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, for UbuWeb, which is your archive of the avant-garde online, um, Kenneth Goldsmith, that, you know, you, you, like last night you posted something like 36 movies, uh, to, you know, additional things to, to UbuWeb. And, you know, you do this still, I mean, really the old-fashioned way, right? I mean, you're still kind of hand-coding the site when you do this, correct? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like a Zen practice or something almost every night. Uh, between the hours of 10 and 1, I'll, I'll take a glass of whiskey and I'll sit down at my computer and I'll crack open templates of, of pages that I wrote back in 1996. I'm still using save as, you know, mm -hmm. uh, so many generations, 25 years later. And, and I'll sit down and I'll update the site. I'll put some music on and I'll start pumping away. And by about 1 a.m., uh, you know, the site will be that much richer. Um, you know, to me, the summers are great. I'm an academic. The summers, I have the summers off. So that's when a lot of the big work gets done. You know, and it's like, I feel it's like uh, maintaining a website like that is like gardening. You know, you got to kind of mm. plant some new seeds and pull up some weeds and trim back, you know, trim, trim back some of the growth and, you know, fix some things. I mean, it's a bit of a mess. You know, it's all, I can't just go in and push a button and, and fix all the links. I mean, there's so much broken stuff on the site mm -hmm. that I'm never going to get to. But, you know, that's what you try to maintain it.
And why do you do it this way still? I mean, you know, because since then, uh, you know, there's WordPress, uh, you know, which is probably the most well-known like blogging software, but there's all these different uh, pieces of software now that make it, you know, simpler, I guess, to uh, to post all sorts of, of content to the internet. Uh, why why hand code it? Well, well, because you remain free. Uh, a lot of times, you know, uh, I, I remember, you know, like I, I did try like one of the early internet building tools. It was called PageMill, Adobe mm, PageMill yes. back in the 90s or something. And guess what? That didn't last very long. These things never last very long. It broke. Um, yeah. You know, they, they get broken. Like databases too. That's why I never went, some, you know, people would always say to me, oh my God, I can put your site into a, into a great database and you could update the whole thing with one click. But uh, what they failed to tell me was that the databases uh, often go out of business. They get sold. They become backwardly incompatible with the next version. you got to pay for the next version. And worse than that, when you're dealing with a database, you often have to deal with a sysadmin. And sysadmins, while generous, oftentimes generous and, and uh uh, uh, you know, uh, magnanimous can be really, really cranky. And once in a while they get pissed off and they walk away with the keys, which is what happened to a huge arts organization uh, in New York City. I got a call one day saying that their entire archive uh, had been rendered inaccessible. This is an archive of video and, 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 and audio going back to the 1960s because the sysadmin got pissed off and walked away with the keys and was never heard from again. Okay, so they're all, you know, and, and on top of that, you know, these, these, these you know, commercial uh, web building kits, if they want to, they can slip a lot of code in and start, start monitoring and, and tracking. You know, you're up for all that, all that horrible surveillance capitalism. When you work with those people, you have no choice. You can't opt out of those uh, uh, analytics and all that yeah. nonsense. Uh, so you're, you're in that, that mess. Uh, you're on Google. You can't get off of Google. You have no control. And they say it makes it so easy. I think it makes it, it, makes it worse. With HTML1, you know, on UberWeb, there's, there's no trackers there's no sniffers there's no cookies the, none of those stupid uh you know i accept your uh your your, your policy of cookies because there are no cookies i mean yeah. you, you know you still can do that you don't have to play all these games and i think the uh shoshana zuboff book of surveillance capitalism from last year was was a bombshell and yet people still say well you know it's not that bad it is that bad and you need to go back to the way that it was originally and it's still possible yeah, my my pet peeve with the new internet is just uh, how uh, if you if you try to hold on to a computer for ten years and still use it, uh, it can't surf the web, and it's only because uh, websites have gotten too uh, you know uh, burdened by all this all this extra yeah. code that's not the content that you were clicking into. Do you know Do you know that the the front page of Uber Web is four K? Mm -hmm. Yeah, is <laughs> still four K. You know, instantaneous because, yeah. on today's broadband, right? <laughs> Well, I mean, also, listen, you know, the digital divide is real. There are yeah. a lot of folks around the world that are still seeing the web, you know, on, on extremely slow connections. And you just can't assume that you can put all this heavy content, you know, and have folks see it. I mean, on our lower pages, you get the, you, it gets a little bit more intense, but there's, there's nothing. There's nothing there. There's no donation boxes. It, there's no nothing. It, it, when you go to UberWeb, it's 1996 all over again. <laughs> That's wonderful. And, and so uh, in the few minutes we have left here, uh, Kenneth Goldsmith, uh, you are the, the founder and I, we call you creator, uh, chief curator, it seems, of UberWeb. And you're the author of the book, Duchamp is My Lawyer, um, which is your memoir of, of sort of creating and maintaining um, UberWeb. You know, I know you, you also have you, you had a little career in radio. 
<laughs> and one of our favorite, very favorite radio stations in the world, WFMU out of Jersey City, uh, New Jersey, um, where your air name was Kenny G, which, mm-hmm. which I mm-hmm. love. To, to the chagrin of many, uh, many, many avant-garde listeners. And you called it uh, Kenny G's uh, Hour of Pain. And, and, and just I want to say that unlike almost any other uh, radio station in the world, uh, the archives of your show are still there. Like people can still go back and listen to it because WFMU has always sort of expressed a, a similar sort of um, irreverence, if you will, um, that, that, that UberWeb does, a similar spirit of, of letting these old artifacts that would be otherwise ephemeral, these archives of radio shows on community radio, um, they stay. I mean, they're there in place. Uh, people can go back and listen. But I, I wonder if you, if you can tell us a little bit about, about what, what, what the show was uh, and why you did it. Well, you know, listen, it's all the same. Um, you know, I was a DJ on FMU from 96 to uh, 2010 for 15 years. And um, so when Ubu started, my career at FMU started, and um, the overlap was absolutely amazing. And a lot of stuff that's up on Ubu Web came from the FMU library, uh, particularly when, you know, at that point by 95, we had a lot of CDs and a lot of cool avant-garde CDs. I was just ripping stuff. I'd spend my entire show being on the air, but also I'd bring a spare computer in and just be feeding it CDs and ripping <laughs> yeah, stuff. Yeah, a lot of community radio <laughs> DJs and college radio DJs uh, feel you on that point. Yeah, folk yeah, archiving. Yeah, yeah. Folk archiving. Well, it's true, and I think that's the way a lot of stuff gets out there. You know, We certainly couldn't have afforded or didn't have the network to buy this stuff. So um, Ken Friedman uh, uh, was a huge inspiration to me, the kind of uh, Catholic uh, notion of freeform radio, the idea that you could take something very high and then segue it into something extremely pop or extremely low and have them both make sense uh, as a leveling thing was a great inspiration for Ubu Web. Um, and, and, it, and as I said, it sort of queered the avant-garde in a way that uh, traditional notions of the avant-garde couldn't have, uh, couldn't have been. Also, Ken has a very... Uh, 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 level-headed and rational uh, idea about copyright. And again, I call myself a folk archivist. I'm also a folklorist, not folklore, L-O-R-E, but a folk L-A-W. Okay, and being fo- a, a, somebody involved with folk law is actually uh, uh, seeing law, copyright law, the way it actually works is a way instead of the way uh, it really is on the books. And I started to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit on the cease and desist letter with that. Now, I learned a lot of this stuff from Ken, who's been a folk lawist mm-hmm. forever. Um, and so, yeah, uh, Ubu and and and, and uh, I, one of the uh, Ubu web streams used to be an Ubu web stream. Uh, so for many years, even after I left the station, FMU continued to support Ubu web by, by, by streaming, giving us backups. I mean, the, you know, the, the two histories of, of the two things are, are, are intertwined very strongly. Thank you so much, Kenneth. Thank you once again. And I will say mission accomplished with the book. I came, I did come away inspired and reminded of these things that I, I know, but you, they need to be reified every so often. And, and, and you, you really did that work here. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Radio Survivor on the radio. If you'd like to hear a longer version of this interview with Kenneth Goldsmith, we spoke with Kenneth for another half an hour, and you can hear that on the podcast, radiosurvivor.com, or anywhere you, where you get 
your podcasts. Radio Survivor is always available to, to take your email. You can email us. The address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We'd love to hear from you. On behalf of Paul Reismandel and myself, Eric Klein, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.